You can open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 15 is where we're going to be today. And we find in this chapter uh, a council. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a little bit like the uh, councils of the, the churches of the first couple centuries of the history of the church. You can see in the first centuries of the church, the church is trying to, to grasp some realities of everything they knew about Christ and His coming. They're trying to grasp what, what, who He was. Like, just, just how is it that, that God and man be, can become flesh? And was He God? Was He man? What, what sort of, did He have one nature, two natures? How was that all, how'd that all work out? And, and even working out things in terms of just the books of the Bible. Which books are in the Bible and which books are not? For the first 300 years of the church, there was intense persecution. These books were around, but it didn't come just like, oh, here you got them all. They're kind of floating around. And, and so they needed some clarification on these issues. And so they often called church councils to come together to decide once for all, like what, what, what is true? What is the canon of Scripture? Who is Jesus? What, how, is, how is he made up? What, what, what is he like? And at, at times... Even, even in the church, there was great danger in division, <clears throat> where some people believed something and some people believed another, and, and oftentimes they're called together so the church could be unified in what it is that they believed. They were called ecumenical councils, and they did much to help clarify the, the orthodox beliefs of the church, and perhaps the, the most famous of all these councils took place in Nicaea, it's in, in Turkey today, uh, at 325 A.D., and now before this council, there was a, a division about beliefs about the nature of Jesus, and, and particularly his relationship with the Father, and how could he be a son, and how could God the Father be God. And on the one hand, you have this man named Arius, who read the scriptures that speak about Jesus being the only begotten God, Son of God, and, and claimed that Jesus Christ as a begotten being was created, fathered, if you will, by God, and, and thus the divinity of, of Jesus was denied Arius said that Jesus was not God. Oh, he had some supernatural ability through him. Through him, God created the world, but he was not almighty God. <clears throat> On the other hand, you have those who followed a man named Athanasius. who read the scriptures and concluded they taught that Jesus was God. So however you understand this fact of, of God, of Jesus being the only begotten son of God, that cannot mean that he was created at any time. And thus the scriptures speak of, of the begotten of the Father, right, from his own being. He was the essence. He was God um, just, just eternally there, but somehow sharing the, the, the being of God in full divinity of Jesus, Athanasius affirmed. And, and uh, around 300, these two different beliefs were dividing the church. And Constantine, who was the Roman emperor in these days, didn't like the divisions. He, he, he preferred peace in his empire. And so he used his authority to convene a council to meet to resolve this issue. He said, just you church people, you figure it out. Is Jesus God or is he not God? And so in the summer of 325 A.D., church leaders from all around the Roman Empire were summoned to Nicaea uh, with a central meeting place for them all. And uh, though 1,800 men were invited, 318 came to debate this issue. And out of the council came a creed. From Nicaea, it's rightly called the Nicene Creed. And from time to time at Rock Valley Bible Church, we have quoted this creed. In fact, I think it'd be good for us even to quote this creed here this morning. So let, let's quote it together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of things visible and invisible. 
And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of the very same nature of the Father, by whom all things came into being, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, who for us humanity and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate and made human, and was born perfectly of the Holy Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, by whom he took body, soul, and mind, and everything that is in man, truly and not in semblance. He suffered, was crucified, was buried, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven with the same body, and sat at the right hand of God the Father. He is to come with the same body and with the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead. Of His kingdom there is no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, in the uncreated and perfect, who spoke through the law, prophets, and gospels, who came down upon the Jordan, preached through the apostles, and lived in the saints. We believe also in one universal apostolic and holy church, in one baptism, in repentance for the remission and forgiveness of sins, and in the resurrection of the dead, and in the everlasting judgment of souls and body, and the kingdom of heaven, and in the everlasting life. That came out of the Council of Nicaea, just grasping exactly what this is. But I trust that you can see part of the greed that addresses the nature of Jesus. We read this. Right? Look at that second and third paragraphs of the creed, trying over and over, super hard, to try to describe who Jesus was, the Son of God. He was, it says in that third paragraph there, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten and not made. And, and, and the reason why uh, this was so clear is because th- this heretical truth of, of Arius came in, and, and they tried to be super clear on what they believe, what the church believed. In fact, those who attended the church uh, signed these paragraphs and signed this whole statement as to what, what it was they believed. In fact, all 318 who attended that council signed it, except for two, Arius and his friend. Arius then was banished as a heretic, and the church then was united. Now, in the history of the church, right, there's several councils that worked in this way, issue threatening to divide the church. The church leaders gathered, want to establish what was right. What does the Bible teach and what does it condemn? And I just say we ought to be thankful for the divisions and for the the conflict that brought these councils together because these councils restored unity in the church and they brought clarity to what uh, what was to be believed. And in some strange way, actually, we ought to be thankful for those who are teaching heresy. For apart from Arius teaching his heretical doctrine, the church would not have come up with these such paragraphs like the second one, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the begotten of God the Father, the only begotten. That is, here it is, the essence of the Father. Right? He and the Father are the same essence. That would not come out unless there was teaching that, that there wasn't of the same essence. And, and it's the very error in teaching that causes the church really to, to pray and deliberate and come to, to debate and deliberate and to come what orthodox doctrine really is. And so when there are false teachings, 
right? In some regards, we can be thankful for that because it challenges the true church to clarify what is the true teaching. Or you might say it simply this way, heresy brings clarity, which is the, the title of my message this morning. Because that's what we see. We see heresy coming into the church, and then we see clarity coming out. We see heresy regarding the gospel. Uh, and we see clarity then coming out about what it is that we should believe about the gospel. And so with the ecumenical councils, the same thing we, we see here. There's heretical teaching entering the church, and the leaders of the church then gather in Jerusalem where the main authority center was in that day, and they decided the matter, right? In fact, a secondary title to my message this morning could be this, the first ecumenical council, because that's what took place, right? This is the very first time there was any type of ecumenical council. And then the church entered a time of persecution stuff, and the second one was uh, the Council of Nicaea that I've talked about already. Or, or another title of my message might be this, the Jerusalem Council, yeah, that's often how people refer to Acts chapter 15 is this, this council when they, they get together. But this morning we're going to say heresy brings clarity. And we're going to be looking this morning at the first 11 verses of this chapter. Uh, the chapter really comes in context of a church that's booming. Uh, Paul and Barnabas just returned from the first missionary journey and uh, they encountered there much fruit. And uh, they went city to city preaching the gospel. They saw many people believe in Jesus and experience the forgiveness of sins. And, and Paul and Barnabas established churches. They, they appointed elders and they, they prayed to God and trusting them to the Lord in, in many ways. And in chapter 14 and verse 27 gives a good summary of the flavor of that journey. It says that when they arrived, that is, arrived back from their missionary journey, they, they had gone and been gone for maybe two years or so. Remember, they went up to Pisidian and Antioch, or they went to Cyprus first, and then Pisidian and Antioch, and then Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and then they retraced their steps and, and all back. And after they, they came back, verse 27, they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them, and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And, and that was huge, right? He opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Here it was, the first time in history that we see the expansion of the church coming from <clears throat> the Gentile community. He, when when uh, the church first started in Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 believed, and soon after there were 5,000 uh, men in the church. Um, that was primarily Jewish. And as the church went out, it primarily went to the Jewish synagogues, and was primarily Jewish, but here for the first time in history with the missionary journeys of Paul, all of a sudden we're bringing in all of these Gentiles into church, into believing in Jesus. And, and sure, in, in Acts chapter 10, we saw Peter <clears throat> going to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, and uh, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Cornelius came in and his household and his friends and many relatives came, but that was relatively small. In Acts chapter 11, right, we begin to see some multitudes coming to the church in Antioch. But the missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas were on really exploded the multitude of the Gentiles that were coming into the church. As John Stott said, the trickle of Gentile conversions was fast becoming a torrent. This mighty flood, this mighty surge of all these Gentile people coming to Christ. And the church had not experienced that before. And they're trying to understand how it is that Gentiles come in. How do you bring them all into the church? And one of the big tricky things is the, the cultural divide between the Jews and the Gentiles in the, in the early day. I mean, Jews didn't associate at all with Gentiles. 
They, they didn't do business with them. They didn't eat with them. They didn't socialize with them at all. So how are they going to come then together to worship together? And there were some who were saying the Gentiles, to solve this problem, uh, must be circumcised to be saved and submit themselves to the law of Moses. Now, theologically, that makes sense if you understand that Christianity right, came out of Judaism. And Christianity is really under the umbrella of Judaism. People might understand it that way. <clears throat> and uh, Gentiles used to come into the, the Jewish religious system being taught the law, being circumcised, submitting to the law, being ritually cleansed with a ceremony much like our Baptism today, immersed in water, is how they would come in to cleanse themselves. Then they came into the synagogue as proselytes, sort of, sort of second-class citizens, but at least in and, and culturally acceptable among the Jews. They would accept them in their worship services. And these people who were, who were arguing that the Gentiles must be circumcised to be saved right, thought much the same way, that Gentiles are going to come into this umbrella of Christianity, which is sort of like a, a, a part of Judaism. They ought to come in the same way the proselytes ought to come in. And practically, the Jews would be more open to mixing with the proselytes as well, which is all heretical. There are others, on the other hand, I, the, the truth, right? these are the truth speakers, so that the gospel is not some add-on to Judaism. As if those who are believing the Jewish Messiah need to enter into this religious, Jewish religious structure. See, when Jesus came to save sinners, he saved them from the law, right? To be apart from that. We know by the works of the law, no flesh should be justified before God. Romans 3, verse 20. The point of Jesus' coming was that he fulfilled the law and that he fulfilled it for us. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. We don't need to then go back under the law. And so they said... Paul and Barnabas and, and others. The Jewish laws are not applicable to Gentile believers in Christ. We don't need to bring the believing Gentiles under the law again to, to be circumcised or to eat the Jewish diet. And Paul showed no compromise in this. And that was really the thrust of Galatians chapter 1. Right? That, I mean, there's no compromise in this. Even if an angel comes and preaches you a different gospel, don't believe him. Even if someone else says, hey, I've got this revelation from God, don't believe him. We see in our text Paul standing firm for that. And, and the debate, though, in the early church went on and on and on. And, 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 and Paul was in Antioch and he was teaching these things. And, and others came in and believing some other things. This debate went on and on. And they decided then eventually to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders who had gathered together there to decide how to deal with the Gentiles. And with that comes some clarity in the gospel. And all that's a big summary of what's going to take place in Acts chapter 15. We're not going to see today the whole resolution of the council, but we will see the beginning of it, the gathering of it, and uh, hopefully we'll get to Peter in his first speech. We read in, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, discussion, um, dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we should be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. My first point this morning is this, the debate in Antioch. Because the debate in Antioch was over the question that I described to you about the Gentiles who are believing in Jesus, what must they do to be saved? And we read in verse 1 that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And now these, these brothers, I, I have a little map here. You can see them, that we, we've got them in, in Antioch, but we've got some of the believers from Judea, and that's mainly from Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is. They came down to Antioch, that is, they came down in elevation, because Jerusalem is up in the mountains. <clears throat> they came down to Antioch, and uh, they began teaching. And they began teaching the Gentiles must be circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses if they would ever hope to be saved. Now, we know later in the letter, uh, from, we, we know later from Acts chapter 15, uh, that these men were unsettling the minds of those who were in Antioch, particularly un- unsettling the minds of the new converts in Antioch, because they heard from Paul and Barnabas, you, you believe in Jesus Christ and your sins are forgiven. You, you can stand holy and blameless before him. And they believed that and embraced that and they'd experienced forgiveness of sins. They experienced the joy of the Holy Spirit come upon them. And then these other people coming from Judea as if there was authority there because they came from the main authority structure of the church, um, almost as if they came with apostolic authority, we find out that they then come and they, they troubled the minds of people as they were teaching this different thing that you need to be circumcised to be saved. In fact, look down at verse 24 where you see this. This is a letter eventually that gets written to, uh, uh, to the believers in Antioch. But he says that we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. So here we are from Judea. They they maybe heard about these Gentiles in Antioch and they came down and they told them they need to be circumcised to be saved. And it was troubling in the minds of people, which it certainly is, would be troubling if you believe one gospel and someone else comes in with sort of another gospel that you need to do this and to be saved. It can be a, a troubling thing. Well, not only with the new converts being troubled, but we see Paul and Barnabas being troubled, right? Because they knew that, that the gospel came, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that's what they preached when they preached on their missionary journey. They were preaching the free grace of God. You simply turn from your sins and believe and find salvation in his name. In fact, even in Acts 13, when you, when you find Paul was there in city in Antioch, and, and, and he preached to the Gentiles. He merely said, I've made you a light for the Gentiles. You may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And they believed. And, and, and they were saved from their sins. 
We see that in Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So they believed the word was spreading or going on. And this was what Paul was preaching when he was out with uh, Paul and Barnabas. He didn't say anything about circumcision. He didn't say anything about keeping the law to these Gentiles. And now these teachers from Jerusalem, right, the place where it all began, began teaching you can't be saved unless you are circumcised. And so Paul and Barnabas, being troubled at this teaching, stood up. It says this in verse 2, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. The NIV translates this, that Paul and Barnabas were in sharp disputes with them. The NIRV adds that Paul and Barnabas argued strongly with them. I mean, this, this was their ministry, was, was not founded. You need to be circumcised to be saved. They knew there was a grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that saves people apart from works. They believed this teaching to be heretical. This was the gospel once for all delivered over to the saints. See, the good news is not that believe in Jesus and then go through some religious ceremony and you will be saved. It's not believe in Jesus and go to this church and do this thing on Sunday mornings and you will be saved. It's not go to church and, and have any other sort of ritual or, or adding or work or, or go to or believe in Jesus and then do your best at your works. That's not what the gospel is. The way of salvation is calling on the name of the Lord. Confessing your, your sin to Him. Believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Believing His resurrection is your assurance that what He said was true. This is our fighter verse this week. If you've been memorizing that, if you say, hey, I want to do that this year. Um, Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You simply call the name of the Lord. You don't have to be, be baptized. You don't have to right, be circumcised. You don't have to have this church attendance. You don't have to do all these religious things. You call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. It's faith alone that saves. Now, of course, God will transform those who are believing and trusting in Christ. Right? The Spirit will come upon them and produce fruit. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things will flow out. They're, they're not meritorious. They will be signs of salvation. Not necessary, as they said here in verse 1, Unless you're circumcised, this outward ritual, you cannot be saved. Well, in the second half, we read in verse 2, After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension to debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So there was this debate and battling back and forth, and those in Antioch said, Paul, Barnabas, why don't you go to Jerusalem, go back to Jerusalem and solve it with the apostles, right? The authority structure of the church at that time. And obviously they were the best ones to send as they were contending for the faith. Um, yet there were some others who went with them as well. We don't know who they were. Um, but we do know what they did as they went on their way up to Jerusalem. Verse 3 tells us. And so having been sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. So if you see our, our little map here, if they were in Antioch and going up, that is up south to us, but up in elevation, they would pass through Phoenicia. They would pass through Samaria. And as they did, there was one thing on their lips, the conversion of the Gentiles. You know, they were like missionaries on furlough, who were going around to the various churches describing all the great things the Lord was doing on the mission field. As, as they went through, they described the, the events that they had on their journeys in Acts chapter 13 and 14, their first missionary journey, and told stories of the Gentiles who came to faith in Antioch of Pisidia. How the whole city had gathered together that day 
and uh, it was just packed. And, and then when, when Paul, they began reviling Paul, but he turned to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles were saved. And now they kicked him out of the city, and then went to Iconium, and more Gentiles were saved there. And Lystra and Derbe, and the, the same thing came. How these Gentiles turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And when they heard this gospel, they were rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And they brought such news to all the brothers. And this brought great joy to all of them, as you see there in the end of verse 3. See, it's always encouraging to hear what God's working in other parts of the world, is it not? It's always encouraging to hear of the gospel spreading. And one of the things I love receiving is missionary letters. And reading missionary letters just to see how God is doing and what God is doing in other parts of the world. And I know that many of you have received reports uh, from Bob and Bobby Clinton um, from First Love International. We support uh, that ministry. We sort, support Bob and Bobby. And, 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 and just recently in their most recent newsletter, I'm not sure how many of you saw it, but it was about uh, this youth retreat that was in Nepal. And uh, it was super encouraging. I have a few pictures from that event. And uh, a man named Kieran, who is a, a leader of this event, sent Bob and Bobby this, a letter that then came to us. And I just want to read part of that for you, uh, just because it's encouraging. This is similar to what Paul and Barnabas would have done. But Kieran writes, Jameson, how are you? Today I'm writing the summary report of the youth retreat 2021 that happened on 24, 25, and 26 December he said, our three days of retreat have been full of blessings for every youth who participated. Praise the Lord, for he gave us his presence and protection over the time of retreat. We were all blessed to spend the time together in fellowship with one another. We had a total of 44 youths participating from different places. After a whole gap of two years due to COVID-19 lockdowns and social distancing, I must say this retreat was much needed to happen to bring reunion and refresh our youths being in fellowship together. We would like to thank our Almighty God for all the protection and immensely blessing each individual participating in this retreat. God bless this retreat with whole package from get-together, celebration, sports, praise and worship, sessions from the Word of God, Jeep Safari, bonfire, caroling, time with children, gift exchanges program, giving practice, participating in helping in church, testimonies and sharing blessings, and many more. And so he just goes on and on and on. And just even editing, he says, I, I am 100% sure that not a single youth participating in this retreat went without blessings. And some of them were revived in their faith and turned into fellowship again. And he goes on to describe in this letter, you can read it probably if you get the email. If you don't get it, I can send it to you. But describing just the, um, the issue, the things they did day one and day two and day three, just in all this detail. And then he summarized the thing right at the end. He says, overall, we had a blessed time in the whole retreat program. Our youth had to spend time with each other, and everyone enjoyed the fellowship. Everyone was blessed and thankful for all the services they received during that whole retreat time. Please continue to pray for our young adults who will continue to live life outside being salt and light in the darkness. God will definitely work in their life from what they have learned we share love of God together during the whole retreat. As one family, we encouraged everyone to stay in touch with each other even after the retreat. Thank you to all our sponsors. If you support people over there, just thank you to make that helpful. And prayer warriors who are supporting us and praying for these youths who've grown up to love Christ more than anything. We're always grateful to each one of you for your love and your support and your prayers. And when you read such a letter... Just about what's happening with the youth over there and, and just 
This, this happens a, a lot because Americans have helped and funded in these children's homes where these, these children in this uh, Hindu culture have grown up to be Christians in a Christian environment. And, and, and we just even pray that they might go out and impact the world. But that's a little bit what took place in Phoenicia and Samaria. As they were hearing these reports, verse 3, they brought great joy to all the brothers. So they went through and we were telling them all that was happening. Well, in verse 4 then, we see them arrive in Jerusalem, which is my second point this morning, the debate in Jerusalem. Verse 4 gives details about their arrival. It says this, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. The idea here is that they received an, an official welcome. Uh, that is, they, the red carpet was poured out for them, rolled out for them. I mean, after all, these were apostles, Bar- Paul and Barnabas. They were not unknown to those in Jerusalem. They knew of their generosity um, because Barnabas had been in Jerusalem for a long time. He even sold some property and given it to the leaders of the church to help meet the needs of those um, in the congregation who were needy. They knew of of Paul's Christian testimony, even if they hadn't seen him face-to-face to to know him. They knew how he was converted on the road to Damascus. Um, And when things began to stir in Antioch, they sent Barnabas out to Antioch to see what was going on. And they heard that he went and got this uh, man, Paul or Saul, and they they came to Antioch. So they knew these men. And and so they were welcomed. And after this welcome, Paul and, and Barnabas would have given the apostles and elders the same sort of testimony they gave to Phoenicia and Samaria about all this missionary journey, right? They've gone through the same rigmarole, right? We went through Cyprus preaching the gospel, and, and the proconsul believed. And then, then we went up to Pamphylia, and then we went up to uh, Sydney and Antioch, and uh, this whole crowd of people, everybody was there. And, and then the, Gentile, the Jews rejected us, went to the Gentiles, and had so many Gentiles come, and then Iconium, and Lystra, and Derby, and then back again. And the same spiel they would have given another place, they would have given right here. And so that really let's introduced uh, the the issue before them about all these Gentiles coming to faith. And then verse 5, we see those who are against Paul and Barnabas. We see this. After Paul and Barnabas given their testimony to the apostles and the elders, it says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And here we see these people identified as the party of the Pharisees. Now, typically when we think of the Pharisees, we think of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, during his days upon earth, they resisted Jesus to the very core of their being, oftentimes rebuking him, oftentimes being against him. And the Pharisees, if you remember, right, always, always battled on the outside. Jesus always tried to, tried to address their heart, right, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the Pharisees were all about external Right, keeping of the, the laws and how, how important it was to keep the Sabbath and to, to pay the tithes and to condemn all those who didn't conform and to keep yourself totally separate from sinners. And here we see the same battle. The Pharisees are continuing their hold on the outward conformity to the law. Verse 5, these believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them in order them to keep the law of Moses. See, even their... Uh, in their belief in Jesus, because we see here they were believers in Jesus, whether that's false or true or can't, can't understand it entirely because you can't believe it's necessary to circumcise people according to the law of Moses if they ever be saved, whether they are believers. But anyway, they're, they're part of this, this Christian sect of the, of, of the Judaism. And, and these people thought that Christianity was simply a new sect within Judaism. 
rather than an entirely new movement, right? There's, you've got Judaism, and we've got maybe some Pharisees don't believe Jesus is Messiah. Well, we are the Pharisees that do believe, but we're still under Judaism. In order to come into the church, you need to come through the religious mandates of the Old Covenant. This is kind of a, a Jesus plus mentality. And, and I would say this Jesus plus mentality is very applicable to us in our day and age in America. Because this Jesus plus mentality is alive and well in the minds of many. Tony Morita says in his commentary, many adhere to a Jesus plus something gospel, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus quiet times. And then he says this, but if we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. If we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. And that's what was at stake here with this Jerusalem council. It was the gospel. And that's why verse 6 says that the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And right here we see the truth of the title of my message this morning, that heresy brings clarity. Right? The idea of adding anything to the gospel is false. It's wrong. In fact, it's even damnable. Many go to hell with good intentions, thinking that, well, I, I've believe in Jesus, but now I'm doing my part, right, for, for him, like paying him back or showing him good, as if I need that. Right, the ga- with the gathering of the apostles and the elders, right, clarity is brought to the issue that it's none of those things. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, with this council, we're going to see three speeches, one given by Peter, one given by Paul, and one given by James. And at the end of the chapter, we're going to see the apostles and elders decide how to deal with the issue, and, and they do so in a way that makes clear what the gospel is. But it doesn't, didn't come easy, right? It came with, with much debate. If you look here in verse 7, it says, um, 7, where's, where's verse 7? Here. And after there had been much debate, much debate, I don't know how long that is, whether that's an hour or two or three or some days, I'm guessing it went on for a long time back and forth the argument went. The party of the Pharisees said, no, circumcision is necessary. Submission to the law is necessary. You got Barnabas and Paul and Peter and James on the other side of the debate, right, saying, no, we're saved by the grace of, of Christ until it was finally resolved. Well, this morning we're just going to have time for Peter's speech, which comes in verses 7, the second half of verse 7 through verse 11. And Peter said this, He said, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear But we believe that we should be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And with these verses, Paul goes back to the events of chapter 10, um, which describe when when God called Peter in a dream to go to the house of Cornelius. I, I trust you remember this, that he was up on the housetop and this dream came about the sheep coming down and all these all these animals, and, and, and the vision told Peter to eat. And he said, by no means, I've never eaten these unclean, I've never right, been involved in these unclean things. And then we came to and tried to understand there's a knock at his door, and, and God had been working in the, house, in the life of Cornelius. And uh, the Spirit even told him, right, go with these men, go to Caesarea. And he went to the house of Cornelius, this house of the Gentiles, and he says, you know it's unlawful for me to associate 
with anyone who's not a Jew, even to eat with you. But here I am, I'm coming, I'm doing this. It's kind of weird, but then he preaches the gospel to them. Even before he gets his sermon finished, right, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they believe. And that was such a strange event that even when Peter came back uh, to Jerusalem in, in Acts chapter 11, he, he was accused. He said, what? You, verse 11, verse 3, you went to the uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Like, you, you can't do that with uncircumcised people. And so Peter tells the story again. And here's a third time. A little, little insight. This is a really important story in the, in the course of the book of Acts. It's the third time it's repeated. The story about going to uh, Cornelius' home in Caesarea. Now, he doesn't give all the details. But he, he simply says, if there's any, if there's any thrust, he says, God is the one who initiated this and brought this about. I mean, look at verse Verse 7, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. But in other words, right, God made a choice among us all. He said, Peter, you're the one, and you're going to go to the Gentiles to open the door of the Gentiles. After all, Jesus did give him the keys of the kingdom, and there he is opening the door for the Gentiles to come and believe. And what Peter is saying is God's idea. God made a choice among us all. He chose me, and I went, and I brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And they did. They heard the word of the gospel. And they believed. Cornelius and all his household believed and trusted in Christ. So God sent Peter. And furthermore, not only did God send Peter, but God bore witness about the events taking place there. Look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Just as he did to us. You remember, so he's talking about the day of Pentecost. You remember when, when we were there in the, in the temple, in the, in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit came upon us, and we began speaking in tongues, and, and we began just, a, just this miraculous thing taking place? That's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 10. If you look in Acts chapter 10, or you can just listen to me, verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And that's when Peter said, well, can anyone withhold water for those who believe, who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized, not, not in order to be saved. It's interesting here. He doesn't say, you must be baptized to be saved. It's just the natural response of a believer is to be baptized. And so they respond in that way. But it's the Holy Spirit that Paul's talking about here in verse 8, about God bearing witness to this whole action by giving the Holy Spirit just as he did on the day of Pentecost, the Gentile day of Pentecost. And and, and furthermore, right, God in his initiation, right, made no distinction. Verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So in other words, he went to Cornelius' house and and the Holy Spirit came upon them and there was no distinction. Everything we got, they got. We are what they are. And God is not making a distinction here between Jews and Gentiles. And, and in fact, it even says that God, verse 8, he knows the heart. He knows the Gentile heart. He knows the Jew heart. And those that believe, he gave the Holy Spirit to them. It wasn't whole my idea. And then, then he comes to the conclusion as he's preaching them. He says, okay, now, now why are you testing God? Why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on them on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. In other words, right? Why are you testing God to bring these Gentiles into submission under the law of God? We've not been able to handle submission under the law. Our fathers haven't been able to handle submission under the law. 
What, what makes you think that it's good for these Gentiles then to come under the law just like you all have? And he's really rebuking right the other side here. He's rebuking these Pharisees who are all about externals. They're all about the religious structure. They're all about the, the, the tracks you need to get through in order to be justified in, in God's sight, in their sight, to be able to be in their little club, to do their little rituals. But then he says in verse 8, and this is where it's crystal clear, right? Heresy brings about clarity. Here's the, the best clarity that could ever come up pass. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's Peter's main point. And this is the whole point of Paul. This is the whole point of the apostles, is that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And, and, and he speaks this first to the Jews, he says, don't we, Jews, believe that we are saved through, through the grace of the Lord Jesus? It, it's interesting here that in verse 11, he doesn't even mention faith. He doesn't say we're going to be saved through faith. It says we are saved by God's initiative, by his grace that comes upon us, that grants us faith, that grants us repentance, right? that, that gives the Holy Spirit to us. It's God's grace that we're saved, and God gives it to the Jew, Gentiles. God's given it to the Jews he gave it to the Gentiles next ten. He continues to give it to the Gentiles today. And there's the big impact, right? We believe we Jews are going to save through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as the Gentiles will be as well. And I don't know how much clearer on the gospel I can be, how much clearer on the gospel we as a, a church can be, how much clearer on the gospel Peter could have been. But after all this debate and discussion, right, Peter says, hey, listen, I was there. God initiated. He brought me there. I preached, God poured out, and, and just like we are saved by grace, so also are they saved by grace as well. So are you saved by grace this morning? Are you here because you know you've experienced the grace of God in your life? And this is why we exist in church. We exist in church to enjoy that grace of God that comes. As we sang today, it's not what my hands bring, because we bring filthy rags to God, right? But it's simply by faith and, and trusting in Christ, the goodness of God to come into us that we might wear his righteousness, that we might enjoy that, that we might then go forth and, and proclaim the glory of Christ. Because we've enjoyed it so much, we want others to come and share it with that joy. And, and if you don't enjoy that grace, if you don't know that grace, I call you today to repent and turn and trust in Jesus. Don't think about my church attendance or my, my Bible reading or, or my knowledge or my rituals I go through. Don't think any of that saves. None of that saves. Now, much of our Christian life is all outflow. It's, a, it's from the heart that we do these things. But none of that is necessary and needful for us to be saved. And that's the issue that they're fighting right here in the Jerusalem Council. So they, they deal with these cultures clashing. And as they deal with trying to figure out how Gentiles come in. And, and really, at, at this point in the, the council life of the church, the, the council could have gone either way. If they said, yes, be circumcised, the, the gospel would have stopped. It would have been hindered. But no, God in his sovereignty, just as he was with Peter in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, I believe he's also right, guiding them here in what it is they should believe and what it is they should re- react and how to respond. Just thankful for the the sovereignty of God in directing these apostles to come down in this ecumenical council to, to really stand firm right here where Peter is, that we're saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. So let's pray. Father, I do pray, God, that we might really reflect and think hard about this passage of Scripture, this gospel then that Paul will take forth and we'll see in the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey, as Peter is 
said his last words in the book of Acts. It's right here. We, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. I, I pray that we would embrace that, understand that. And for anyone here who doesn't embrace that or doesn't know that, God, I pray that you would convict to the heart. Um, God, that you would pour forth your grace upon that person, that they might know you. That it's not a matter of works that we do in righteousness. It's Titus 3.5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that you have poured out your spirit upon us. God, grant us the grace to accept this, believe this, and never depart from it. As Paul said in Galatians 1, as I read earlier in the service, God, even if an angel from heaven, even if we have some revelation, this is the gospel upon which you stand, that we are justified apart from any works of the law that we would do. God, what good news this is, as our fighter verse ends, Romans 10, verse 14, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. God, may we have beautiful feet here who have received the good news of Christ's coming, and may they be beautiful in a sense they go out and they speak with others about this beautiful good news of Christ. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.